This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as the long-awaited Ramstein summit begins, we discuss the very latest political manoeuvrings in Germany and elsewhere. From military donations to Ukraine, to the war of words fast raging within the European alliance about the best way of tackling Russia's invasion in the next phase. Plus, it's Chinese New Year on Sunday, so an opportune moment to refocus our attention to a country playing an increasingly important role in the war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the very latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 20th of January, day 331, and to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and, calling in from Taiwan, our China correspondent, Sophia Yan. I started by asking Dom for a summary of the fast-moving developments at Randstein over the question of Leopold tanks and whether they will be sent to Ukraine. Well, hi, Francis, and hi, everybody. So, latest on the tank situation is in the context of um, the 8th Ukraine Defence Group meeting going on right now at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany. So the US Air Base in Ramstein, Germany, happening right now. It's 50 countries, including all 30 members of NATO. Um, this is, the, the, as I say, the 8th in the series, hosted by Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defence, US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin, the third um, of military aid for Ukraine. Tanks is the is the the flavor of the moment as uh, as we've been as we've been discussing all week now a lot of a lot of movement here um a lot of it contradictory so stick with me at the back boris pistorius germany's newly appointed defense minister said he was quote was not aware unquote of any stipulation that the us should provide its abrams tank before berlin um sends leopard 2 he said that on broadcast ald last night he said nobody rules out that the leopard tank can be delivered or approval can be given for deliveries of other european partners okay then a spokesman for the german government said there was quote never a moment unquote when the delivery of leopard tanks was linked with the delivery of abrams now this is Contrary to what we've heard earlier in the week from Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, Francis, I think you're going to pick that up a little bit later. So, so contradictory messages, but the, the latest messages, albeit not from the boss, but from the, the defence minister and the spokesman for the government, are leaning in that direction that that, that leopards might be uh, might be on the way. Now, Lloyd Austin, as I said, the US Defence Secretary in Ramstein this morning, he opened the meeting 
but confirmed that the U.S. will not provide Abrams tanks, saying it would send the U.S. is going to send larger infantry fighting vehicles, as we've seen the Bradleys um, and Striker, which I'll come on to in a moment, uh, Patriot air defense systems and and others. Now, Mr. Austin did say. Uh, This is a quote. We need to dig even deeper. This is a decisive moment for Ukraine. The Ukrainian people are watching us. The Kremlin is watching us and history is watching us, unquote. So a lot of not confusion, but but constantly updating the positions. Now, I mean, as far as I can, I'm told the US are reluctant to send Abrams because they have a a different fuel system, different engine. um, And the logistic tail would be would be more burdensome. Now, you can make the same arguments about British Challenger 2, and we're sending 14 of those. Um, so I, I don't know how strong that argument is and whether the US are going to move. But at the moment, it doesn't, doesn't look like it. But on, on the supply of leopards and whether or not Berlin will send, either send their own or give permission for other leopard operating nations, about 14 other nations, whether they can send their leopards. I mean, even the Kremlin has said they're not fussed. I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly. But today, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov has said... Uh, quote, one should not exaggerate the importance of such supplies in terms of the ability to change something. All these tanks will require both maintenance and repairs and so on. So sending them will add to Ukraine's problems, but will not change anything with regard to the Russian side achieving its goals, unquote. Right, fine. OK, now, first, I mean, on that, I'm amazed that Russia acknowledges the need to maintain and repair tanks because there's been scant evidence of that so far since February the 24th. But secondly, if Russia doesn't give a hoot about leopards, the US and Poland and Lithuania and other countries don't give a hoot about leopards, I don't get the German reluctance. So, as I say, Ramstein is going on now. Maybe something is going to shift by the end of the day. Um, now, Mr. Zelensky dialed in. President Zelensky dialed into the to the meeting this morning. Um, thanked all the participants for their previous support. Urged them to make today uh, today's event a Ramstein of tanks. I mean collective noun i've been hitherto unaware of a ramstein uh steins i'm very very familiar with uh, that's another story but ramstein of tanks for today and he said i can thank you hundreds of times but hundreds of thank yous are not hundreds of tanks um and uh, a lot another a longer quote there that um that francis i think you're going to mention later so that's what's happening today this is on the back of or rather as a as a prelude to this Last night, the U.S. Department of Defense made a made a statement of a of another two and a half billion dollar aid package. Remember earlier in the week, I, I, well, last week, this time last week, I was having um, having lunch with a, a Western official who said this this week was going to be the week that could be characterized as the week Ukraine was given the the uh, necessary equipment to win the war. Um, so last night, in that vein, the U.S. Uh, Defense Department announced two and a half billion military aid, fifty nine Bradley. Infantry fighting vehicles, very, very capable infantry vehicle, um, would complement and needs to complement tanks. And 90 striker armoured personnel carriers, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, also, um, also including this package is ammunition for HIMARS and NASAM, so it's air defence and uh, long-range precision artillery. 350 Humvees, the high-mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicle. Um, different variants. I don't know what the variants are. That's not been listed, but 350 is a big old number. And that is on the back of hundreds of others in recent aid packages. So in terms of putting together a mobile force, of course, Humvee can't put up with uh, with a uh, main armament of a T-72, for example, but you can do a hell of a lot else with it. And in terms of a, a mobile reserve, they, they are great. 
Also going 53 mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, MRAPs. These are large, basically armoured personnel carriers, but with a V-shaped hull. So any um, any underbelly mines, any dug-in mines, the the blast is sort of uh, channeled away from the main compartment where the where the uh, troops are. Thousands of anti-armour rockets, hundreds of tow missiles for the Bradleys. Tow is uh, tube-launched, optically tracked, wire-guided missiles, so anti-tank missiles that when you fire them, um, a, a little cable, a fibre-optic cable, comes out the back, spools out the back of the of the missile so that the controller in the vehicle or on the ground, whoever's fired it, um, or from the helicopter, in fact, um, can control the missile and steer it onto the target, so two missiles. Um, an additional 3 million rounds of small arms ammunition. So, you know, a big old package here. Striker in particular, a great a great vehicle, fairly modern. Uh, Striker's a family of 8x8 wheeled vehicles, um, named after uh, two Medal of Honour winners, Private First Class Stuart Striker from World War II and Specialist, or then Spec 4, Robert Striker from Vietnam. Striker has 30 mil or 50 cal machine gun, 50 caliber, so as in 0.50, half an inch, about 12.7 mil um, equivalent machine gun. So a big old heavy machine gun. One variant can have a 105 mil gun, which is, I mean, we've still got Britain, still got 105 mil artillery. So, you know, fairly big old, big old beast. That's what the French have got on their AMX-10. So good for fire support. As I say, I don't know if those are the strikers that are going, but it, but it can be. Um, and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said that this was a significant new security assistance package to help Ukraine continue to defend itself against Russia's brutal war. And that $2.5 billion, um, just takes the US military assistance up to $27.4 billion. I mean, these are eye-watering amounts of money, um, which they are uh, gratefully received by, um, by Ukraine, as they said yesterday. Now, one final thing. Um, the Tallinn Pledge. So yesterday, just ahead of Ramstein, there was a meeting in the UK of the defence ministers from um, the UK, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and representatives from Denmark, the Czech Republic, Netherlands and Slovakia. They um, they also pledged a huge list of arms and equipment, including drones and counter drones and air defence and helicopters, anti-tank missiles. I've tweeted out uh, a link to it with with a full list of stuff. So I won't go through that because it, it'll take too long, which is good. But just three highlights. The Czech Republic said they're going to be working with their industry, their defence industrial base, to increase production capacities of large-caliber ammunition, howitzers and armoured personnel carriers. So when we've talked about supplying Ukraine is, is good, but where's, where's, where are the factories? Who's building these things now? That's what the Czech Republic are leaning into there. Latvia said it's going to train around 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers in various programs from basic infantry training, which is also happening here in the UK with a big international cohort of um, of instructors, but also uh, specialised courses. So again, we've spoken recently about, well, where are you going to get this training? Who's going to train on, where are the Ukrainians going to train on tanks and, and armoured uh, and artillery systems and air defence and all the rest of it? So Latvia leaning in there. And finally, Poland reiterated it was ready to donate a company of Leopard 2 tanks. So, you know, depending on where you, when it would draw the line, about 10, 12, I'd say 14. Um, we use the term squadron in the UK, but other other, com- uh, other nations use company. Um, but about you know, 10, 12-ish. So they're ready to donate that with a thousand pieces of ammunition. And pending this, a wider coalition of Leopard 2 tank donors will be established. And I thought that was very interesting. Those words there, will be established. So almost saying... Look, Germany, you know, if you're you're either with us or you're or you're not, but if you're not gonna if you're not gonna sign off on this, then we're just gonna gonna go it alone, which would be a bit of a diplomatic snub. 
but I think people are getting very frustrated there. Anyway, that, so that was the Italian. They signed up to this the, the Italian pledge. So named because it, uh, it uh, the, the first meeting uh, came out of Estonia, the capital of Estonia, and that was just the latest meeting there hosted yesterday in the UK. So Ramstein is going on as we speak. I'm looking at the news to see if there's anything coming out of it. I'll let you know towards the end if there are any any updates. But um, I think that's it from the from the military side. I'll leave it to you now, Francis, to dig into the uh, diplomatic space. Ooh, horrible word. Thanks, Don. Well, it does feel especially this week that the military and the political are are intertwined. Uh, Klaus Fitz was right. Um, But to dive, yes, a little deeper into the diplomatic space and particularly some of the reaction to this, you mentioned there, of course, this what some people are interpreting this morning as a major U-turn from Germany, although one wonders looking at the detail whether it's more cock-up than political conspiracy. So, as you say, this spokesman for the German government uh, said that there was never a moment when the delivery of Leopard tanks was linked with the delivery of Amram's tanks from America. But just to go into more detail as to exactly what Olaf Scholz said earlier in the week. He said that he would only send Leopard 2 tanks if America donates the equivalent Abrams from its arsenal. That was reported in Politico. He then told US lawmakers at Davos that Germany relied on US nuclear deterrent and then made the point explicitly in a phone call with Joe Biden, according to the US media. So don't have a, have a go at us, Gov. You know, this is, this is what you said yourself. Uh, it's not a media um, thing. So very interesting uh, seeing what's going on here and whether it is marking a U-turn or whether it's more just a, a mis- miscommunication within the German government. It's too early to say, but certainly it's leading to a lot of commentary this morning. In terms of other commentary on this question of tanks, President Zelensky has unsurprisingly urged Western allies to speed up the delivery of military assistance, including this badly needed heavy armour. So just looking more deeply into what he has said, he says... I can thank you hundreds of times, but hundreds of thank yous are not hundreds of tanks. We have to speed up. Time must become our weapon, just like air defence and artillery, armoured vehicles and tanks, which we are negotiating about with you and which will actually make a victory. The Kremlin must lose. You can start this policy today. It is in your power to make Rammstein of tanks, not to bargain about different numbers of tanks, but to open the principle of supply that will stop Russian evil. It is in your power to make victory. Make your decisions hit accurately. And just to speak to this, uh, the strength of feeling within the Ukrainian government, um, our man in Kiev at the moment, Roland Oliphant, obviously on the podcast yesterday, he's spoken to senior presidential advisor to President Zelensky, Mihailo Podolyak. When Roland was talking to him, he's, he's spoken to it to us since and has fed back some very interesting lines that he was saying. So he said that in the view of the Ukrainian government, Ukraine can win the war this year if the West delivers modern battle tanks and long range precision missiles. He believes as well that Western governments would overcome Berlin's reluctance to deliver main battle tanks and that German Leopard 2s and British Challenger 2s Uh, will come so that the battle will be there by spring. He also said that he believes that the Ukraine government can win the war this year. So the most interesting thing, I think, from those lines, I say Roland's only just spoken to him, so this really is hot off the press, is this idea that actually the battle tanks are coming, whether Germany 
signs them off or not. They have a strong sense in Kyiv that the political ground is shifting. And the only question for Berlin now is whether they're going to follow, follow the, the direction of travel and react to that or whether they're going to perhaps be forced into a decision in order to save face. And indeed, that's what we've been saying now for the past fortnight or for, past fortnight or more. Um, uh, the other things he said, which were quite interesting, we definitely think by spring that we will have enough equipment to effectively unblock all of our territory. That means liberation. The Euro- European Tank Alliance will be formed soon. It's now really a question of logistics and supply, of training and of setting up repair bases. The general political consensus is already there. And as I say, there'll be more detail in this piece that Roland has just filed and it'll be online later on. But as I say, very, very interesting remarks there, perhaps unsurprising, but nonetheless interesting. Moving on to further diplomatic developments, again, on this theme of, of, of military expansion. President Macron has, is, um, well, he's expected to announce later on, but I think he, there's already very strong hints as to what he's going to say. So he's going to be unveiling his vision for modernising the military in France, taking into account the impact of the war in Ukraine and the evolving threats around the world. We understand that he's expected to include higher military spending in line with NATO expectations that, of course, require members spend 2% of their GDP on defence at least. Many countries, of course, do not do that at present, which was something that America was particularly upset with during the uh, Trump era, but is still very um, agitated by, given, of course, the invasion of Ukraine. Macron's also executed to present the outlines of future military spending for 2024-2030. Uh, is meant to take into account the consequences of um, all of the latest developments in the technology space as well. Um, And it's going to, as well as this further funding, include sort of latest high-tech weaponry and wants the military strategy to strengthen the country's role as an independent global player as well. So something to watch this space. I think there's going to be... There's already some stuff online on this, um, but I think that there's more to be coming in uh, throughout the day as we get some reaction to it as well. So as ever, do check out our Ukraine live blog on our website. Uh, just a couple of other up- updates in the diplomatic space before we turn to Sofia in, in Taiwan. So Israel's foreign minister is reportedly accepting an inter- invitation to visit Kiev today. So as we've talked about in the past, Israel and Ukraine relations are tense at the moment due to the former refusing to provide Kyiv with air defence support against Iranian-made drones and missile strikes on civilians. There's numerous reasons as to why they believe this is the case, um, not least the fact that um, Israel is generally reluctant to provide support that it fears will anger Russia because Russia largely controls Syrian airspace where the Israeli military carries out quite frequent air raids. So they rely on on the Russian not alliance, but but being on on decent terms with Russia. There's also, of course, this ongoing uh, discussions around the Iran nuclear deal. And they think sometimes that Russia may well be a key broker in that, in terms of dealing with the Israeli concerns. And so that's another reason. But as I say, the significance is, of course, that now that Iran has got involved in Ukraine, in the sense of giving these drones to Russia, Iran being Israel's arch foe in the Middle East, of course, um, there's concern now that Israel may shift its position, at least there is in Moscow anyway, and that things may well change. There's been a lot of recent media reports in Jerusalem and elsewhere in Israel claiming that the country's new government is 
preparing to adopt a more overtly pro-Russian stance, which it has denied is the case, and this would speak to that, but there has been a lot of speculation around that for the reasons I've just cited. So again, one to watch this space on, and quite quite interesting this. And then just lastly, because I continue to refer to war crimes as an issue whenever I can... The UK is joining an international push to hold Russia accountable for the Ukraine invasion. This is part of them joining a group of international partners pursuing criminal accountability. The government has said in a statement that it has been invited by Ukraine to join the group and has encouraged other G7 nations to also take part. British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly has said the atrocities must not go unpunished. That is why the UK has accepted Ukraine's invitation to join the coalition, bringing our legal expertise to the table to explore options to ensure Russia's leaders that's important, leaders, are held to account fully for their actions. So we're hoping to do another deep dive on this soon. And I'm very keen to get in touch with somebody within the British government itself, very senior. And those conversations are ongoing at the moment with regard to some of the details about this and what the process is. But again, something to to, to keep an eye on, because this, of course, is really, really important for the long term ramifications of this war and that justice is done. So that's where we are in the diplomatic space here within the Western Hemisphere. But turning now to the other side of the world, where we're very, very happy to be joined by our China correspondents, Fia Yan, of course, a very, very regular on on the podcast uh, in 2022. Very happy to have her back for 2023. Fia, you're in Taiwan now and wrote a long read for us about having to leave China. What happened and what's the latest with you, first of all? Well, the operating environment in China was so tense. It had gotten so tight. I really felt that I had no choice but to leave the mainland. And in the last decades, during this time that Xi Jinping has been in power, things have really taken a downhill turn. I simply didn't feel safe anymore. And even well-placed people in governments and other governments were telling me that they could no longer gauge their risk level. I actually recorded a whole podcast series as I was evacuating China which was not the plan when I first started the project. You can find it on any pod app. It's called How to Become a Dictator. Um, you know, and how do you cover a dictator in a country where you're not allowed to call him a dictator? You know, it's just uh, bananas, to put it in one word. So long story short, I, I just didn't want to end up a pawn in China's hostage diplomacy. I could have been banned from leaving the country forever, possibly for years, maybe even worse, locked up for a very long time. Uh, these are things that Beijing has done before to foreigners and Chinese alike. So it was really time to go. Uh, I've spent 10 years between Hong Kong and Beijing covering China. So now I'm in Taipei coming to you from Taiwan, which a lot of a lot of people think about as possibly the next Ukraine. And so it's really a timely it's timely to be here. Absolutely. Well, turning to, to Taiwan and, and China then, um, let's start with Taiwan. What do you, what's the general mood there at the moment? Uh, what I imagine could be, could be considered quite an anxious time. Well, for the most part, it probably is similar to what Ukraine felt like before the war. I have Ukrainian friends, Ukrainian sources, and even even before, even in the days before the invasion actually happened, a lot of them were still kind of hedging their bets. They didn't necessarily believe that anything was going to happen. Life was just chugging along. And so I feel that too in Taiwan. People are going around doing their thing. There's a lot more political discussion for sure, but there's not that much nervous energy, even though there are near daily incursions by the Chinese military. Just this week over a 24-hour period, the Taiwanese defense ministry said it had tracked 16 Chinese military aircraft and three naval vessels. 
And this year, so far, we're talking hundreds of these aircraft and ships coming around from China into Taiwanese airspace, into Taiwanese waters across the strait. I mean, this is really pretty provocative. China's just being aggressive. But somehow still life goes on here. Uh, it's very complicated here, too, because there's identity politics. Taiwan itself is a place built on a Chinese identity. There were many Aboriginal groups that were here in Taiwan, local to Taiwan. They're still here. But going back in history, decades ago, when General Chiang Kai-shek lost to Chairman Mao's communists, that meant he fled to Taiwan. And it was his party, the Kuomintang, that came built, well, their version of China on this island. And so things have changed a lot. But when you're here in Taiwan, I mean, I'm coming to you from near Guilin Street and near the Guangdong Night Market. I mean, these are places named for places in the mainland. Even tomorrow is the start of Chinese New Year's Eve. Everyone's going around giving out red envelopes of money, visiting temples. This is Chinese culture. And for a while, students here were taught that one day Taiwan would, quote unquote, take back the mainland. That there would be one glorified, unified China. That itself is an idea that a lot of people can get on board with. It's like the idea, the dream of a unified Korea. But in reality, of course, the political system in Beijing and in Taipei, it's developed in two very different tracks. And the Taiwanese identity has grown significantly. And so these are all the things that are really interesting, I think, to think about that I've been observing myself. Um, one an op a slightly unpopular detail perhaps to highlight is that Taiwan has also benefited from China's economic boom. There are Taiwanese companies that have had factories in China. They've got cheap labor there. There are consumer brands from Taiwan that have found a massive market in the mainland. Even the tourism sector, at least pre-COVID, there are plenty of people here. I just met this one woman recently who was telling me that she, well, she used to run a night market stand making scallion pancakes. It's like a local street food. It costs less than a pound. And you basically have your dinner. And she would make a, a ton of money in just a couple of hours every night. So, so much so that she and her husband could take annual vacations to Europe. But now that's not the case because the mainland tourists are coming. So it's a very complicated situation. At the high level, there's all the geopolitics. There is absolutely this growing risk of war. It's not a given, but that threat is there. But on a, a more personal, on the ground level, it's pretty confusing for a lot of Taiwanese people. A lot of a lot of them don't want to be under the Communist Party's thumb, but at the same time, they don't want to deny their Chineseness e either, even though they call themselves Taiwanese. So it's it's a lot. Very complicated picture. Yes, I'm. A question I had before we turn to to China is, what do some Taiwanese politicians? want from the West particularly? I'm thinking if you were to ask Ukrainians what they would have wanted prior to the invasion, they would say, well, now knowing what we know, they would have wanted far more weapons and perhaps they would have even wanted more Western boots on the ground in order to deter a Russian invasion. Are you hearing similar things from Taiwanese politicians? Absolutely. The government and, and politicians are on both from both political parties, both uh, dominant political parties, uh, have have made comments to that extent. Uh, there's interest in having actual bells and whistles for the military, actual hardware, so that they can prepare weapons systems, things like that. And there are moves for Taiwan to buy them. There are deals with the U.S., for instance, for more stuff, essentially. There's also a lot of interest in having diplomatic support in other governments understanding what's happening, understanding why Taiwan does not want to be part of China, and trying to strategize as to how that how, how we could prevent that potentially from happening. But it's very complicated. You know, all of these things, it's, it's, how, it's this big question of how do, you, how do you prevent something that could maybe possibly happen? 
I mean, it's so many ifs. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be preparing, but there are so many things that are up in the air. And so that makes it really quite difficult. And all of this, of course, is wrapped up in domestic politics, too. Like any other government, it's hard to think about some of the big issues. The military here, for instance, has been trying to figure out how we can shore up its defenses if push really were to come to shove. Push came to shove. Sorry. Um, and so there's a big debate about how to do that. The military itself is in some ways uh, very giant and a little bit behind the times. You know, modern warfare, we're way past the era of using bayonets. You know, I'm not saying that the Taiwanese military is that far behind the times, but they really are starting to think now more deeply about what it would look like to prepare their troops if something really, really unspeakable were to happen. Thank you. So turning to China then, there was a long read in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago that suggested senior Chinese diplomats were seeking to reconnect with Europe and were privately rather embarrassed by Putin's actions and their associations with with the country. For some of our listeners, it will seem that the West doesn't know who the real China is. Is it a country that wants to be friends with the West and is embarrassed to be seen working with Putin? Or is it a country which is actually happy to work with any tyrant if it strengthens its own hand? What's what's your take on this? Does it hold two contradictory beliefs at once or is it playing both sides? So one thing to note is that the Chinese government itself is very opaque. And so China watchers like myself, at best what we can do is what we call reading the tea leaves. Uh, One thing about China, even though it's ruled by one party, there can still be dissent. And there is among the ranks. The problem is what gets executed in the end has to be okayed by the guy in charge. And that guy is Xi Jinping. Uh, China often wants to have it all. They often do want to play all the signs. Uh, Part of this comes because Beijing still has some of this mentality where it really wants to be taken seriously, to sit at the adults table. It doesn't understand why it can't hold its own there And that's why you get the wolf warrior types, this sort of very aggressive, belligerent rhetoric from Chinese diplomats. This happens when the government feels that China has been disrespected. They don't understand why that's happening. Well, okay, so you can sit at the adults table if you can engage maturely. And time and time again, China's shown that it can't always do that. I mean, their diplomacy is this kind of tit for tat game. Okay, you won't give us onions, so we won't give you onions either. You know, it's like very, it's very like a a one for one you won't do this for us, well, then fine, we won't do the same thing for you. You know, it's it's kind of like the, the behavior you might imagine amongst children kind of just bickering on the playground. That's sort of what I have in my head when I see how they handle these things on the world stage. Now, more recently, in the last couple of months, it does seem like China wants to start to rehab its image on the world stage. This week at Davos, you've seen the Chinese, they've trotted out, uh, it's their uh, one of their senior officials, a major economic advisor, He's trying to play nice, you know, things like this. But and there are lots of big meetings that Xi Jinping took after a major political meeting last fall. But at the same time, what China really wants to do is to be able to do whatever they want, have their cake, eat it too. The bottom line to remember is that Xi himself has personally staked his reputation on a relationship with Putin, with Russia. And Xi himself is presented as this all-powerful, completely infallible leader. So it's hard for China to distance a lot from Russia publicly. And at the end of the day, you know, China really does want to keep all its characters in the fire because they want to do what's best for itself. They want options and they want to smooth the way for what would be best for Beijing. It's all about self-preservation, self-growth. And that holds true even if it means working with some terrible regimes. 
There's been lots of speculation about China's role in getting Putin to tone down the nuclear rhetoric. Just wonder whether what your thoughts are on that, first of all, but also on this question of if push came to shove over Crimea, say, and Putin were to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept, and this is obviously a long way off, but let's say we're, we're in the situation, I'm willing to accept not taking all of Ukraine, I'm willing to accept not even keeping those regions prior, that, that, that were taken um, early on in the war um, and even prior to the war, but Crimea is my red line. Do you think China would back him in that or do you think that maybe they would still lean more, more towards the West at the end of the day? So China prides itself diplomatically for what they say is not meddling in other countries' affairs. China always criticizes other countries for telling Beijing what to do. And so China's always going around saying like, hey, you know, to, to countries that they want to work with, eh, you know, cooperate with us and we won't tell you what to do. We're not like the US. We're not the West. We're not going to value judge you. We're not going to do it. Uh, and so because China says this all the time, they do at times try to practice this. So even if you were to come to this hypothetical situation with Crimea, as you say, um, as you described, China's take and answer to that would be to fall back on its usual language, that it respects every country's sovereignty, that it won't meddle in any other nation's affairs. And that's a cop out because that's not taking any side. They don't want to get in the mix of it. First, they don't have the experience of getting into such complicated situations. And secondly, they really don't want to have to make that call. And you've seen this from the very start of the invasion, that China has been really very careful to tiptoe around the issue. And there's a lot of analysis trying to understand what they're doing. But at the end of the day, what Beijing is doing is just trying not to get in the middle of everything because they don't want to be there. Uh, as it pertains to nukes, this is also something that China, of course, would not want to see happen. But again, you have this real problem that Xi Jinping has gotten very close to Putin. They have all these buddy-buddy moments. It's been all over the propaganda within China, around the world. And so now what? You know, he's sort of backed himself in a corner in that respect. Thank you. I mean, this is pretty massive if that were to be the case, that if we were in the situation where Crimea was the was the, the fault line, as it were, in this war, and China would say, well, actually, we're not going to go down on Russia's side on this, you're on your own, then that would have huge geopolitical ramifications for, for Russia, one could argue. I just wanted to on your thoughts on that. I think the thing is that China would be very careful not to say that it was taking either side. That it would not want to make a stance uh, to to publicly give its stance either way, and so you can read that line. You know, they often use it now that they respect every country's sovereignty. Well, every country might just define their sovereignty very differently. I mean, you see that with China, right? China says Taiwan is part of China. Taiwan thinks something very different. So when you say when Beijing says that it will respect whatever other nations are, you know, want to define as their own borders or whatnot, that's a, that is a cop-out. They are not really taking a side. They are saying something that you can't really refute. You can't really say they're wrong. Uh, it's just a platitude, really. It's like this sort of very non-incendiary thing for them to say. And then they've made their statement, and then they can just quietly slink away. And just one more from me before going to Dom. You mentioned there that China claims it doesn't like to act in other countries, that it doesn't want to meddle in foreign affairs. Just wanted to give you the opportunity to, to perhaps describe some ways in which they do do that and that it's just not, not true to say that they don't. Yes. Well, you know, this is the big debate. You know, I, when China says this, they often are sort of 
scoffing at the West, you know, oh, the West always telling us that we have to have better human rights or whatnot. But yes, of course, a growing, more mighty China. We've seen that happen in many countries. In the UK, very recently, many people will remember this very crazy incident where a Chinese diplomat was, from the videos that came out from the incident, there was a protest staged outside the Chinese consulate in Manchester. And so uh, protesters are dragged in to actual consulate grounds. And there are videos showing a Chinese diplomat hitting these people. And so it's become this big thing. I mean, that's just one example. That is just one example of many, many other ones that other nations have faced. Also, other incidents, of course, in the UK, of how China is seeking to influence what people know and think of Beijing, of even free speech that's being perpetrated on foreign soil that involves China. It's incredible the extent, the reach, uh, how long the arm can be of the Chinese state. And the other one that occurs to me was that story of the uh, Chinese agent who was said to have been active in the UK parliament, um, funding MPs and things like that. That was a very dramatic story a few months ago. And I thought what was interesting about that was the fact that MI5 went public, our intelligence service, of course, and said that the Chinese government had been doing this and sort of publicly named this figure. Quite rare for the intelligence services to do that. But I think it speaks to them wanting China to know, but also perhaps for politicians and those of us watching this closely. To, to know that this is a, a serious step for the future. Yeah, that was Christine Lee. This uh, this is something that has been going in a lot of different countries. This idea that Chinese that the Chinese government is really trying to curry favor to influence different groups in different countries, whether that's parliamentarians or it's government officials. It's it's not necessarily um, the kind of buying that you know the kind of uh, it's not like james bond you know we're not thinking or we're, we're not seeing that from the chinese necessarily it's not quite so sexy if you will um but they are seeking to pave the way for their own interests you know i was speaking earlier about how they're driven really by very selfish priorities so that's what they want they want to create an environment no matter where they are within china or in other countries that will always be favorable to their own interest and one way to do that is to find uh, supporters, people who can be in their corner. And that's why you see cases like this, of this kind of influence. And because of the way the system is in China politically, you are rewarded if you show your loyalty to the Communist Party. You are rewarded, possibly promoted if you're in government. Um, you might get better business dealings if you're uh, business deals, if you're uh, in private business, things like that. And so it's itself a very complex matter. Some people will be put up to doing things like that. They might even be forced into doing it. You know, there are all sorts of ways that the Chinese government can intimidate people into doing what Beijing wants it to do. But then on the other hand, there are also people who may be acting of their own volition because they think it will help them with their business dealings, with their political careers, whatever it might be, if they go down that path. And so it's this very complex picture where People are jostling in different ways to try to make sure that China's got this way forward. And so that's what makes these situations really so difficult. Well, turning to our very own answer to James Bond, Dom, you've been listening to this. Uh, what do you make of, uh, of of China at the moment? And what are your questions for Sophia? Idiot. <laughs> uh, Sophia, brilliant to hear you again. I'm so, so glad um, glad you're, you're safe and, uh, and back up for air. Um, thank you for joining us. 
I mean, firstly, I, I loved I loved your podcast, um, the series How to Become a Dictator. I was absolutely chuffed to be able to have a very small walk-on part in number four. Um, but it was absolutely brilliant. I really loved it. Um, so, uh, well, just in, in, incredible and really accessible. Recommend it to anybody listening. Um, but just firstly, if I may, a bit of a warmer in the bank. What what did you miss from your time in China? And, and when did you know that it was uh, time or, or that you had to leave? What do I miss? Oh, so much. Yeah, I still have a lot of friends there. Um, I love the food. I do like the culture. It's it's a really exciting place. I mean, it's not always the most uplifting of news that you cover. And as journalists, of course, often we are, unfortunately, you know, we, we come in when things are frankly shit. <laughs> so the stories that I had to cover in China and even now from afar often are really very difficult. They're very challenging and people are going through sometimes the worst moments of their lives, as you all know, too, from covering Ukraine. We're talking war now. Um, so I, despite that, I, I do, I did manage to find some space for myself here and there to decompress, but it was getting harder to do that. I think that's, that's what I realized there used to be more avenues for me to find, to relax, basically, you know, even if it was a couple of minutes here and there. But I realized over time that China China has become very sharp. Uh, I mean, everybody knows that at this point, I think. Uh, and in these 10 years that Xi Jinping has been in power, these are the exact 10 years that I have spent as a journalist in China between Hong Kong and Beijing. And I have seen this shift. I mean, there's you could look at it in two five-year chunks. And it is nowhere near the country I first found myself in 10 years ago, by any means. And so there were a lot of different things that came together for me to finally realize that it just wasn't for me anymore. I mean, there are still plenty of journalists there uh, working, um, bless them, <laughs> they're holding the torch and going on, keeping, keeping, uh, going on strong. So I really salute them. Um, but the government now has more tools at its disposal to block journalists than it ever has before. There's the the worst case scenario where they might lock you up. Uh, you become a pawn in this diplomatic spat. This has happened to foreigners. Um, that's pretty awful. And then there's lesser intimidation, if you could even call it that. But things like... Um, you know, they were coming into my apartment and into our bureau there. Things were getting moved around. Things that didn't belong to me would show up. Stuff would disappear. You know, there's a lot of psychological warfare and how they intimidate you. And then when I would go off and do stories, sometimes I would be assaulted. I'd be followed around by minders. I'd be assaulted. People I tried to interview would get into trouble. It was getting really difficult to report on China. And then on top of that, you had the U.S.-China bilateral relationship hitting new lows. And that's something that impacts me. Uh, also, the UK-China relationship very much changing. So I'm an American with Taiwanese parents working for foreign media. Let me just say I check all the boxes for all the things that they don't like. Uh, and with COVID, it was just very tough. You know, zero COVID, that's changed now. But at the moment I was making this decision, the restrictions were really at their tightest that they had been for, at this point, nearly three years in the pandemic. And with the contact tracing and this health code system that they had, this was being used uh, to restrict people's movement. And so my health code then was changing all the time. If you have a red one, you can't go anywhere. You're supposed to be in quarantine. If it's green, you can get around. And so mine was changing and flickering between green and red all the time. And is it an 
uh, uh, some weird glitch in the algorithm or are they messing with me? Do they not want me to go do that story because they know I have this appointment at 10 a.m. to do this interview? You know, this kind of big question, it's this existential thing that's going. And so it was all of these, all of these things that had happened that in totality created an environment where I just felt like it was really almost impossible to operate. Well, now you're um, safely in Taiwan, and we are very grateful for that. So the view, the view from where from where you are, I sometimes I wonder if um, this idea that the Russia's latest invasion, this phase of uh, aggression against Ukraine, is is in terms of the international security architecture being fundamentally altered. I wonder if that is a peculiarly Western construct, because you're you're now in a country that has lived for years with a an overbearing, aggressive, vengeful, massive power on its doorstep. And I wonder what the view is there as to whether or not this is a change in the international security architecture or, or if, if Taiwan's kind of looking at us all bleating over here and kind of have a, a sort of a touch of the John McLean's about it and saying, welcome to the party, pal. I mean, what's the view there about how we look at it? I think that there is a shift. And I think that a lot of people here would say the same, that there has really been a shift China is the dominant player in the region. It's one of the most powerful countries in the world. But that wasn't always the case. And so, yes, Taiwan has lived with the threat of China for a very long time. But uh, China wasn't always as powerful as it is today. It, I mean, the economy was not doing very well before uh, decades ago. They didn't have a military that could accomplish the kinds of things that they can today. They didn't have the bells and whistles that they have today. They didn't have a leader that they have now. Um, so the the balance of power has changed when it comes to China and Taiwan. And when you think about China and Russia standing on one side, well, then that looks really very different. Now, China at this point has a lot more weight to throw around. I think the relationship is that China's the big brother, Russia's the little brother, that kind of thing. That itself also wasn't always the case, right? The former Soviet Union versus China. Uh, that's a, a shift too. And so I think now we're just in a very unique period of time between what has happened in Ukraine and also with the rise of China and how much more willing it is to be bold and to stand up for what it thinks it needs to stand up for. This sort of newfound confidence, whether or not they deserve to behave this way, it's up for debate. Um, They can be very nasty on the world stage. But I think that's what's really shifted. China has this sense that its time has come. It's time the time for regimes like China, like Russia, this is their moment to shine. And so that has created an entirely different perspective by which they approach everything. Okay, and and guess just following on from that, my last question then. So where do you see, or is this seen as a bigger opportunity, this moment in time when uh, the West or external support for Ukraine, should we say, is, is depleted in terms of military hardware or at very least distracted um, is this moment seen as a bigger opportunity for China or, do you think, or Taiwan? Do they think that you know, we've woken up to this challenge and, and that the uh, use of force to change national borders is not consigned to the past? Yeah, definitely. I think that is the, that's something that not just Taiwan, but the whole world realized with this invasion, that use of force, as you say, to change where the borders are drawn. I mean, this is something that is not impossible anymore. And I, I think that war between China and Taiwan is not inevitable. Sometimes this is talked about as something that will definitely happen. That's not the case. It's something 
we have yet to see. But again, the risk of that happening is higher than it has been in a very long time, perhaps the highest it's been ever since since the time of 1949 of modern China, modern Taiwan. Um, and so, so things, yeah, and that, from that perspective, have really changed a lot. Taiwan now, I think, uh, is able to find more support. There's a lot of interest in Taiwan. I mean, you know, every week it seems that there are different groups coming by, academics, people linked to the military, researchers, government officials, politicians from different countries. You know, there's a lot of interest in trying to understand what's going on here because nobody in the world really wants to see, uh, you know, another Ukraine, uh, uh, that nobody wants to see that happen with Taiwan. So it's a really, um, it's a very interesting moment. It feels really quite surreal for me personally because I have family here. My family is originally from here. I was born and raised in the U.S., but basically all my extended family is here. And so I've come to Taiwan many times to visit, to see relatives, to see friends. And it's always great to be here. But now I'm looking at this in a very different way from a totally different perspective. You know, I see young men and boys on the streets, you know, ki kids who are in high school now, they they're, they could be called upon to join the military if we really were to see a day like that come, to really see war. You know, I can't help but look at everything like that. Part of it is what I do. I'm a journalist. So I'm thinking about these things. But it is a very interesting, um, quite surreal point of view for me to think about because it's it's like my worlds have completely collided my personal life and my professional life at this moment have just completely crashed into each other um but i really think about that you know i even passed uh, uh in the south a military base and the part that you can see now is not in use it's right on the edge of a road uh further up there's a lot more stuff i have no idea what's there but you know i see something not like that and i think okay is that the coastal defense that is going to keep taiwan safe like how is this going to work if this really were to happen, could they do it? You know, I have all these questions. These questions are the same that many other people have, also people within Taiwan and the government have themselves. So again, it's a very unique moment for people from all parts of the government, from all parts of the world to be thinking about what can be done to prevent something like Ukraine happening again, and could it happen in Taiwan? Thanks, Sophia. I think it's time to turn to our final thoughts now. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So, Dom, can I go to you first? What do you want to leave our listeners with as we enter the weekend? OK, well, uh, an update as much as I can from Ramstein. So I said earlier on there was, there was confusion. There does seem to be mixed messaging. Uh, so Boris Pistorius, Germany's uh, defence minister, he says no defence, sorry, no decision has yet been reached on whether to deliver uh, leopards. Uh, and he said, today, we still cannot say when a decision will be taken and what the decision will be when it comes to the leopard tank. And then l a little bit later, this is still in, in Ramstein on the um, on sort of sidelines of the main meeting. He has said, um, well, he said that, Germany, that Berlin is not isolated in preventing the delivery and said the impression that, quote, there is a united coalition and that Germany is standing in the way is wrong. There are many allies who say we share the view that I've put forward here. There are good reasons for the delivery and there are good reasons against it, unquote. So, you know, still no still no consensus of opinion there. Nothing yet from Ramstein, which must be, what's it now, nearly two, so nearly three, uh, probably coming to an end fairly soon. So, yeah, keep your eyes on, on Ramstein. We'll be updating it through the afternoon on our, on our website, but still no consensus of opinion about... Uh, the supply of or the permissions for the supply of leopard tanks, German made leopard tanks. But um, yeah, that will that will rumble over the weekend. 
notwithstanding, I think this has been a successful week in terms of external support for Ukraine. There's been a huge amount uh, done here on the military side and the diplomatic side. And I don't want to try and ca- uh, categorize this or, or contextualize this as a, um, chinks in the armor here. Okay, Germany are great allies in part of, in NATO. They've supplied a huge amount of, of um, uh, military equipment to Ukraine, not least which is the Marder, but the RST, the Gepards. I mean, think about what the Gepards done for the um, for the uh, missile attack and drone attack onto all the critical national infrastructure in Ukraine. And, you know, Germany are great allies, right? This is a bit of a bit of a, a falling out. It'd be lovely if the leopards could go. It's not going to be. It's not going to be fundamental if they if they don't. So we've got to put things in perspective. It would be great if they could do. If you're listening, Mr. Pistorius, Mr. Schultz. But hey, you know we'll we'll get over it, and Ukraine will get over it. They've shown that already. But keep your eyes on Ramstein for the rest of the day and over the weekend. Thanks, Tom. I'm not sure how I'd react if Olaf Schultz was listening to the podcast. Um, anyway, thank you very much, uh, both of you, Sophia. I want to give you the final word today as we enter the weekend. What what do you, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about Taiwanese politics. There are presidential elections coming up in early 2024. And what happens here with that particular election could have a real impact into what happens next between Taiwan and China. Right now, the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, um, she's, she's part of the DPP party, the Democratic Progressive Party. And, you know, her it seems like she's a bit waning um, there were local elections a couple of months ago. Her party did not come out victorious. The other party did, the Kuomintang, the party that was in charge that established Taiwan as we know it today. Um, of course, politically, things changed. The Kuomintang used to be a one-party military dictatorship. Martial law changed in the 80s. Now it's a democratic government. Uh, but what happens with this election will be very interesting in the lead-up to it, too. The president mm-hmm. that was in place before the current one this man, Mainjo, he actually uh, met Xi Jinping. It was a historic summit. It was the first time that leaders of both sides saw each other in person. And we could see things change. There's some sense that maybe now China has been so aggressive that there's no way that any Taiwanese politician could even toe the line. You know, There used to be some more debate about whether or not there was some relationship to be had. Try not to define Taiwan's independence per se, but trying to maintain some sort of relationship, perhaps through uh, a trade, for instance, trying to keep the wheels on, essentially. Uh, So time will tell, but definitely keeping an eye out, at least for me here, what happens next, because I think that will tell us a lot about what could come. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Just follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. 
You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing our new email address, ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You'll find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.